This is the one with juicy, juicy sheep bollocks. A strike on Friesland Street. The origin story of the Meg. <laughs> a kitty watching a spider sleeping with the fishes. And a collective human ability to overlook the inexplicable. It's called Thin Ice. <laughs> Here we go. (laughs) Whistle on our epic phrase. All through time and all through space. Whistle being an angel's now. Dalek cyber zoo and wow. Counting Sonic's rating apps. From the poor to the sublime. Eccleston to Whitaker. Let's agree it's about time. Who back when? Reviewing on you who there is. Who back when? Subscribe and rate on iTunes, please. Rose and Donna. Amy Pond. Rory Clara. And beyond. Join us on this side to see what other choice could there be but who back when? Who Back When? What ho, podcast land, and welcome to yet another fantabulous episode of Who Back When, a Doctor Who podcast. Oh, Doc Past. Correctamundo. <laughs> I am Leon, but I am but a third of this crew. In front of me, across the ether, I spy in Berlin, Marie. Hello, Marie. Hello, Leon. Hello, podcast land. <laughs> and hello, and Drew. next to <laughs> <laughs> oh, spoiler alert! Spoilers! spoilers. <laughs> oh, I was just about to say, and to the left of you on my screen, we've got Jason Statham. Hello, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> Jason got tired and had to go to bed early. It's Drew back when now. Oh, fantastic. Hello, Drew. Hello. And today we are talking about, holy moly, or are you excited about this? We're talking about thin ice. Don't answer all at once. Yes, of course you are excited. It's fantastic, isn't it? <laughs> I thought Marie was going to say woohoo, and then she was quiet, and I thought the audio had cut out again. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking about saying woohoo. Did I make the like lip motion or something? How yeah, did you, you really know? did. <laughs> so are you saying this episode is almost worth a woohoo? <laughs> yeah, I just wasn't sure enough to commit to it. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, we'll see if we can sway you either way. Drew, if we're saying that Marie is kind of uh, middling in her view of, of Thin Ice, which direction would you try to sway her? Uh, I'd say definitely worth a woo. Not sure about the supplementary who. Ah, interesting. See, I would say it's worth a who, but not necessarily a woo. Well, <laughs> uh, that makes a lot of sense. It's Doctor Who. I've never Doctor thought of it that way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, now that we have confused you, thoroughly confused you, Podcast Land, how about we try to elucidate you a little bit just to compensate with a bite-sized chunk of who, H-double-O. Let's. Time for us to synopsize, lubify and summarize. So take a view and grab a brew and listen to this overview, this free-for-all. We like to call a bite-sized chunk of who. Bite-sized chunk of who. That bad girl, the TARDIS, has enforced on Doc and Bill a detour on the way back to Nardole's Tea Party, namely to London's famous and much-frequented final Frost Fair of 1814, where the elephants in the room are real elephants on the ice, and also the continuation of slavery. But betwixt the acrobats, sword swallowers, swarthy wrestlers from exotic climes, and pies of questionable provenance, there is a chicanery afoot, as bioluminescence swarms in the subglacial drink of picking off straggling drunkards and urchins in an ice-cold analogy of society's cracks. Rather than following the solid lead of a tattoo-handed man, Doc thinks it'd be more fun to use Bill as giant fish bait. 
Under cover of night, they dive feet first into a deep, dark mystery, at the putrid heart of which is just what the shit is the well out of orgia evil industrialist Lord Sutcliffe up to? Discover, <laughs> you are welcome. Dusted. <laughs> so, what's the first order of business, der Gastgeber? <laughs> Do you just have Google Translate or like on a constantly open tab? <laughs> no, no. I listened back to our review of the Beast Below. We may get to that. Oh, fantastic! Oh, that's excellent preparation. I wish I had been quite as diligent. Well, I mean, I, I do have a few questions, but how about one of you guys start this one off? I have an opening question for Marie specifically. Ooh, Let's hear it. Okay. <laughs> how was it for you watching this episode right after watching Sea Spiracy on Netflix? <gasps> <laughs> no, I didn't even put the two together. That's really stupid. <laughs> we should definitely be kinder to the animals in our oceans, including the giant one in the river thames yeah that's roughly the length of the river thames yeah <laughs> it would have taken like an hour for it to get out of there i don't believe it can like swim as fast swim away as fast as it did and you can just see its tail like flooping under the bridge that's also provided that its muscles haven't atrophied over like several generations of just being <laughs> tethered to the you know the it's bottom of the thames yeah slithering along the floor just like picking the river the, floor like, yeah, exactly yeah old trolleys <laughs> yeah. and beer bottles the only thing <laughs> that's had any exercise in the past seven centuries or as far back as records go is its powerful sphincter (laughs) (laughs) yeah maybe that's how it works it's like a you know like a squid that sort of ejects ink as it goes along it sphincter jets its way out the thames estuary is what you're saying precisely what i'm saying thank you thank you for putting the science into words I mean, that is my job as a copy editor, so, you know, what can I say? Innate talent. But you weren't particularly pained by the mistreatment of this aquatic creature, Marie. Well, I do just feel like it harks, but I was very, very pleased that this creature was not the last of its kind. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) We've had this so many times. Was it not, did you say? Well, I mean, like, do we have any evidence of there being more of it? Of its kind. No, but it wasn't explicitly named as such and really harped That's on true. it was throughout yeah. the episode. That's true. We if also didn't like... have it pine for the only other remaining member of its species. It wasn't like, oh, they've they've been kept apart. You know, like the um, time heist minotaur mind melting monster. Exactly. Exactly. Ugh. But yeah, I do right. I feel like Leon, how many times do I have to tell you? <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like we've had so many of these creatures over the years in Doctor Who. I'd, maybe my sympathy levels are not as high as they should be. <laughs> <laughs> Did this episode also remind you of the beast below? Yes. Yeah, the freaking space whale. Yes. The thing that's underpinning <laughs> something and it's secret. And once you uh, have been alerted to the truth, suddenly your whole morality is wrapped around it. And also it made me think of the one where there's a dragon in the moon because... Again, it oh, was yes, yeah. Doc saying to Bill, you have to make this decision. It's your planet. You're the human. You give me like the go ahead, basically. Yeah, um, I serve at the pleasure of the human race. Yeah, which has only Wait, happened is there, twice. Is there such a dialogue with Bill? Yeah, yeah. He's, Wait, remind he me of this. Asks, he asks her to give him an order, basically. Says, you're the boss. I can't act on behalf of humanity. You need to like choose how to act because she's worried that the creature will get free and kill everybody will just go and eat everybody that's on the river anyway and it's about letting it go and trusting that it won't destroy well 
at this point London rather than the Earth, at least. But yeah, yeah, which is exactly like in the Beast Below. Yeah, where the the problem is if you hit the abdicate button, will the whale just fly away and doom all of space britain to a, a cold icy death in space yes this leads me to a segment <gasps> here we go i like to call okay trolley do's or trolley don'ts <laughs> because this episode has a series of trolley problems mm. list them alphanumerically the first, <laughs> the first begins with c for coal mines What's okay. the course of action one should adopt to run a steel mill? Should one send increasing numbers of men down dangerous mines, possibly to their deaths, or continue to exploit the suffering of one fish that can shit rocket fuel? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you still the... have to feed that fish humans, though. That's the problem. <laughs> yes, you like, do. That's, yeah. that's the problem, exactly. You're absolutely like, right. You're guaranteeing the death of loads of humans versus accidental guests in the coal mine. What probably we should do is make the coals safer and we will have fuel with zero human death. You mean raise the safety standards on the mines? Yeah. Yeah, that's a weird thing. Also, why can't the fish eat things other than humans? I mean, it can't eat hats and boots. It's made that abundantly clear with its continual belching. <laughs> but what about <laughs> livestock? So yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And or just it doesn't dead people. To... Save precious London real estate. You don't need cemeteries anymore. Just chuck them in the river. Bish, bash, bosh, they disappear. Yes, abso- absolutely right. In fact, just sort of wall off a section of, uh, I guess, ocean. <laughs> That is roughly the size in terms of like square footage of the Thames. Curl up this fish in there, give it a lobotomy so it doesn't suffer, and then just feed it dead people. That was going to be the doctor's solution in The Beast Below. The lobotomy is a sound doctor-approved, doctor-endorsed cause. There you go. There you go. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, and so on and so forth. I I feel like that makes perfect sense. It's a horrible thing to say. Uh, (laughs) I hate myself for saying it, but it makes absolutely perfect mathematical sense. But it's not the needs of the one versus the needs of the few in terms of, like, lives. It's not that Earth would die if we don't have this one thing. It's just we'll have extra super strong rocket fuel. There are other methods Actually, you know what? I think the Earth would die if we didn't have this one because surely this is more environmentally sound than coal mines. This yes. thing is going to shit anyway, right? It's going to shit anyway. Yeah, and also it seems to be operating on some sort of carbon slash heat capture mechanism whereby if it shits a lot, it <laughs> makes the frost fail. My favorite night of the round table, by the way. <laughs> But but I felt like this episode hinted in a few places that this beast was responsible. I feel like one of Lord Suckless' yeah. lines were like, it hasn't done this, it hasn't made this happen in a while. Yeah, I But think it you're never right. explains it, but it really and, hints at it. Well, and Doc was like, he's going to swim off up to Greenland and make that really icy and um, go to the cold waters. So if the water's already cold, maybe it doesn't need to make it colder, but somehow... I feel like you if could take advantage will... of a lot of aspects here. Maybe you don't even lobotomize it. You wall off a section of ocean. This creature doesn't have any social circle anyway. Like it's been under, it's been tethered to the Thames for generations. By the way, how was that accomplished? But anyway, <laughs> yeah. so it, it's it, they it's been it down when there it for was a while. Really tiny, and it just grew <laughs> to the <laughs> shape of the <laughs> river, uh, the Thames. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So if you, if you put it in a in a in a, in a cube instead, it like it just turns into yeah. Anyway, so, oh, so it's, you, it's like it's like a tapeworm shoved into the arse of Britain. Exactly. That's and it, it. Just it, grew to <laughs> at 
map the intestinal tract of the British Isles. I would like to say congratulations, Drew. In fact, I'm going to raise a beaker in your honour. That's going to be the uh, one-sentence summary of this episode that goes on the website. <laughs> but I mean, seriously, wh- why don't we don't even have to lobotomize it? Just wall off a section of ocean, put it in there, put and it in then the Venetian like, lagoon. And then, well, just just feed it, like take care of it, entertain it, dance for it, play music for it, worship it, and then never open another mine again. Never, you know, exploit the environment. Never exploit workers. Really, just milk this for all that it's worth. If it's freezing shit. Great! Cocktail bars around the UK at this time are pining for fridge technology that they don't yet have. This thing will make ice cubes for them. Perfect. Yeah, the only problem is, is they're half a kilometre cubed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and then all those people who are like, oh, we're we're working in mines, we're working in, whatever, like oil refineries or something, and they're like, oh, well, what about our jobs? Well, now you have a new career. You can, for example, chip away at a giant block of ice to turn it into ice cubes, or you can figure out the science behind it, or you can become an entertainer and, you know, make this fish monster's life worthwhile. They can make the world's first ice bar. Yes. Oh my God. Yes, exactly. Ice hotel. Way to think outside the box, Marie. That's exactly what this, what UK in, I don't know what year this is, needs. One <laughs> exactly. million percent. 1814. Forget the, the London one. Underground. The UK in the 19th century led the way in ice bars. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Think the of the tourism. The second industrial revolution was all about the ice bars. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but this might also lead to something else. I mean, so what do they say this creature's feces burn hotter than coal, longer than coal, longer like than wood? Long, like a times longer. Exactly. So it's, it's, it is, I mean, Doc uses the term rocket fuel in this episode, right? Yeah. London in 1814, or the UK in 1814, doesn't know what to do with rocket fuel. This thing basically just needs to shit once a year, and the entire country is set. I nah, think that. They need what that fuel you? so they can build a cyber king. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Good reference. Which is also <laughs> in the Thames? Question mark? When was that? Which year was that? Oh, I don't know. I feel like the Thames has had a lot done to it over the centuries by Doctor Who. Poor lamb. <laughs> poor lamb, is that what you said? Yeah. <laughs> the, the poor Thames is going to have a prolapse at this rate. <laughs> uh, I, I'm mega aroused right now. <laughs> <laughs> what's the episode that the Cyber King is in? Oh, it's, uh, what's it called? The Next Doctor, The Other Doctor, something like that? The Next Doctor, yeah. The Next Doctor, there we go. The Next Doctor, it's set in the year 1851. Exactly, there you go. All right. Yeah. So <laughs> why are they having like child slave labor in uh, the next doctor? Surely they will have a few b- shit bricks left. Uh, well, we haven't built a subterranean train system yet. And uh, I guess we haven't rocketed off to the moon yet. What are we going to do with all these shit bricks? I don't know. Build a giant robot that we can worship and that can take over the country. Yeah, because... Some people disagree with worshipping the fish. Various sects and factions are forming. We need something new we can unify behind. Exactly. Exactly. Some sort of <laughs> regal but futuristic totem. That's right. So what other uh, parallels are there with uh, Beast Below and uh, what was the other one? The Kill the Moon. Well, I mean, th- this leads us on to the second trolley do or trolley don't, which is oh, right. 
Once you know of the existence of a suffering fish slash space whale, should you hit the abdicate button slash explode its shackles in the absence of any knowledge, it won't take a murderous revenge on the hundreds of thousands of humans either riding on its back or in the city built around it. And I wasn't convinced back in N062, and I'm not convinced in N134. Um, Marie, take the lead, please. (laughs) I think in this episode, they'd already made mention of like well when they like very first arrived there they mentioned like bill mentions her race and the fact that i think she says they still have slavery and then yeah he's the doc then at the end the doc's talking about like if you build a civilization on this chained animal what is that civilization and i took that to be a link back to like i mean that's very true but the whole point is supposed to be that comparing people of color to creatures slash animals is incredibly offensive well yeah i know there is that (laughs) but no your point is sound i think that's yeah i I took that 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 was what you know she was obviously horrified that she was in a time where slavery still existed and then she was but she was happy to do it to another creature but yeah i guess the like assuming that this creature is going to be violent and is going to eat everyone without any evidence why would you like why would well, you, you can't the assume either way is the thing exactly when, when yeah. it hears it crying and groaning in despair at the bottom of the thames it could just be in pure anguish that oh my prey is all around me and i'm so hungry if only i could break these chains but it just comes out as ah, and it yeah exactly their little bleeding it- heart liberals <laughs> exactly and then at some point it surfaces and the first thing it does is not eat london the first thing it does is (laughs) just spread right-wing propaganda (laughs) you're like wait why did we what (laughs) weren't we better off when you were shitting rocket fuel (laughs) yeah oh this is why we put you down there your views were outdated even before records began Returning to the, um, to use the term that Capaldi's doc uses here, the, the whitewash, like, the, the, mm. do you feel that this was dealt with well slash accurately in this episode? When Bill talks about, she mentions her melanin, she's like, oh, melanin, I'm not going to be welcome here. And then we pan around London in this episode and there are tons, like absolutely tons of non-white extras. And then, you know, after a while, she mentions Regents England a bit more black than they show in the movies. Mm. Doc calls history a whitewash. Yeah, because he says that Jesus is a bit more black than in the movies, which, if you extend that to uh, colour, definitely. I've done a, I've copied a whole book on that. Solid point. Fair enough. That (laughs) makes geographical sense. But But I think it stands for the UK as well. Like, I think there's been a lot of discussion recently about, like, there were black people in all different sort of ranks of society as well. Right, okay. um, Yeah, I'm sure David Olisoga has a series on Britain's Forgotten Black History about exactly this. Yeah, and like, I I don't know if you've got around to watching Bridgerton yet this year, but... That's fantastic. You should definitely you mean see it. I do. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they, I hear like, they go they... into some sort of folly and just bone on on very uncomfortable floors. Sometimes up ladders. <laughs> yes, I'm up for that. <laughs> that was a highlight. <laughs> oh, you did see it, Drew? Or just the highlight? I'm just saying the, the ladders were made it high. That was the, <laughs> okay. Um, never mind. Okay. I got it. Um, I'm on board. <laughs> But yeah, like that, like it's not, it's not like, obviously Bridgerton is not historically accurate. But the like, there's research gone into it and saying that these people existed in society, and we've just completely whitewashed them out of history. And so, like, maybe there were more 
black people on the frost fair than they would have been historically, but those people existed. And so, yeah, why not yeah. show them? I need to read up on this. I, I know woefully little about this, but m- my reaction whilst watching the episode was that she drops this line and then every single extra we see is basically wearing either a very posh dress or a top hat. And I was like, well, is this episode now trying to negate, not trying, deliberately trying to, but is it effectively negating that there was also a problem with racism in society? Is it basically saying, oh, no, no, don't worry about it. Everyone was super well off. Because we don't see anyone who's... Well, you see the street Poor. kid. Yeah, but the, they're also like a mix of ethnicities. They're, and we see just... the drunkard who is denoted as a drunkard because of the poor care he has taken of his clothes, which once were fabulous, but now in a sorry state. I, I think they just spent more time and paid more attention to their clothing back then. Mm. Yeah, you didn't have like Primark one... back in the day. You just had one dress and you had to keep it pristine. Yeah, and everybody knew who their seamstress was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was all interwoven. But no, they made a similar point in the Shakespeare Code, I think, when Martha is uh, sees someone of colour, and mm. I think Tennant says, yeah, uh, more often than you'd think, more often yeah. than history remembers. Interesting. I really want to read up on this. I say I'm not, I'm not an expert on the subject by any means, but that's the understanding that I have is that, that yeah, it was a lot more common than we've been led to believe. We mentioned the um, street urchins before, the street kids, mm. child crime gang. How do you feel about them? I feel like Dot was sweet. My shoes are too big. <laughs> oh, she was quite sweet. <laughs> I stole them off a big corpse. Oh my goodness, all right. Just before I pushed him off the bridge. <laughs> Sorry. Go on, Leon, what did you think about the kids? You're desperate to say something. Well, I, I don't know if I had uh, that uh, that super strong an opinion about them, but th- there were maybe, I'll say three things about them. First off, I thought they were super duper well-rounded as an ensemble cast. You, you, had, like, you had different ages, you had different talents, you know, someone's good at distracting, someone's good at pickpocketing, yada, yada, yada. Um, yeah, someone's and, good at asking pertinent questions about where exactly, members of the may or may not be. At a certain point, I can't remember any of their names. Sorry, I can remember. Oh, no, no. I can remember Kitty and Spider. There you go. Harriet. Um, Harriet asks the important questions. Is Harriet the young, the youngest one, basically? No, that's Dot. Oh, do- oh that's Dot. Oh, sorry. I-, I felt that they were super well-rounded as an ensemble cast and very compelling. Also, there screen. was Perry who eats with his mouth full. Gross. <laughs> Hates wet mouth sounds. Hang on. Eats with his mouth full? Most people do. Talks with his mouth full even. Yeah. Sorry, that's y- 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 yeah, gross. <laughs> gross, Perry. You're supposed to suck it up your nose or... Yeah, yeah. Someone lead Perry out on the ice. Have him tap dance out there. <laughs> number two and number three are both about the Doctor. I liked the Doc's, like, oh, holy smokes, he's really good at relating to these kids. And also, holy smokes, the Doc can't relate to kids at all. Because what? we have the, yeah, we have like Spider is pulled underneath the ice. He dies. And the first thing the doctor does is like blow the dust off his Sonic, like wipe the gross spider germs off it. Go like, oh, sweet, I've got my toy back. But then later on, he is also reading a story to the kids. It's nice. That's not the first thing the doctor does. What is the first thing the doctor does? Because the doctor is conspicuously waiting 
for that arm to disappear beneath the ice so that only the Sonic is left at the last minute for him to grab so that Bill can't say, Doctor, you really obviously just wanted to grab your Sonic back and not save that little boy. Because I can't believe that doesn't get picked up on. Like, Doctor, you're completely motionless until your Sonic's in trouble. You didn't didn't care. You didn't go for his arm at all. (laughs) It it tells everyone to get back. He's like, everyone stay away. Like, nobody try and rescue this kid. Oh no, the Sonic's in danger. Now I'll go in. Yeah, stay away. That's my Sonic. Get your hands off it, you fuckers. (laughs) (laughs) Which, to jump ahead to a totally different point, the lovely speech that the doc gives about your the worth of a society is basically, or the goodness of a society is dependent on the worth you place on other lives, like innocent lives. I don't know, I wrote it down. An unimportant life. An unimportant life, there we go. Yeah, and what does he do for the little street urchin? It's just like, nah, he's gone, who cares? Like, it, you know, it would have been such a lovely speech had he not already... like contradicted it within the episode <laughs> clarified his position here yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay leon and your third point was that he does get on very well with the kids well yes i mean we get that absolutely gratuitous scene of him reading a bedtime story for these no kids. no scene with peter capaldi in it is gratuitous no, 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 no. Sorry, it's not on the part of Peter Capaldi. It is on the part of having an abundance of child actors who have not been CGI'd into this scene. That's what's gratuitous about this. You have all of them just sort of chins resting in their hands going, oh, this is amazing. I've I've never had someone taller than me read me a story. And yeah, sure. No, I absolutely sympathize. But but it's it's a lovely You've scene. You've never had anyone taller I, I, than I'm you read you a count. story, Leo. No, no, I have. How dare you point out psychological the, the, the origins of my psychological flaws? No, I'm painting this out as a negative thing, but I, I find it to be an incredibly positive scene in the episode. Like, Capaldi is constantly vacillating between, in, in the eyes of the audience, or in the eyes of Bill, rather, as ice cold and incredibly sentimental and incredibly empathetic. And the scene that he shares with the kids when he's reading a story to them. I mean, we all know that there's a potentially like alien creature under the ice or there's certainly an adventure to be had. But he's taking time out of his adventure and out of saving London just to entertain these kids. It's lovely. It's a lovely bit of television. The Doctor in the first 20 minutes, callous sacrifice of spider to the beast aside is lovely is it really terrible that i've completely yes, forgotten this exactly. scene i don't remember him reading really to the children he, at he has all. A, no. he has a little book. i don't know what he's reading by the way what's the story he's talking about the the tailor comes back for the boy who sucks his thumb and he comes with his long sharp scissors and snicker snacks and all that sort of business that, oh yes you're right yes exactly it made me think of um peter uh, that horrible German children's book that I mentioned to you at one point, Marie. Um, I'm gonna. I, I didn't look up trivia for this at all. I'm assuming that there's lots of trivia associated with what he's reading, and well, this episode. Oh God, I've got hiccups. This episode in general. Um, what does he read? Weirdly, not in the trivia. Oh, yeah. And on Todd's wiki, it just says, "As night falls, the Doctor reads a book to the urchins by a warm fire." doesn't say anything about what he reads i mean maybe it's made up obviously but i didn't get the imp- I, I got the impression that it wasn't it's the story of little sucker thumb by heinrich hoffman another german connection <laughs> wait 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 is that not the story from Peter? oh i don't know Peter uh, heinrich hoffman hang on i'm i'm looking this up i'm google i'm googling this now 
One day, Mama yes. said, Conrad, right. dear, was, I must right. go out and live Holy here. smokes! Wait, seriously, everyone, uh, uh, avert your eyes. I'm going to jack myself off. This is incredible. Shovel Peter was written by Heinrich Hoffmann. Boom, sell five. Wow, nice. Holy smokes. You can sell a Hoffman from a mile away. I'm so impressed with myself right now. I, I mean, okay, yeah, <laughs> I, uh, the mic is attached to a tripod, but I mean, imagine me dropping in. Where to next? Well, I was going to say how the doctor, for the first 20 minutes, is a nice guy. He's light-hearted. Who would have thought that the guy who two series ago, in the very same 19th century London setting, was the very coinage of curmudgeonly is now this happy-go-lucky thief scampering about on this frostfet just letting bill have as much fun as she likes before they get down to business mm. yeah w- were you not utterly charmed by it because i was uh yes i was utterly charmed by it i really liked that line actually but um <laughs> I'm so sick of companions going, doctor, 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 forever, and he ignores them. And yeah, this time around, it turned out that he hadn't been ignoring her. He knew exactly what she was talking about all along, because he just turns around and goes, oh, you've seen the lights underneath. Or that's the side effect of time travel, is seeing lights under the water. It's quite a nice little line, and it just shows that he he is paying attention. Yeah. Like, I know what you're going to say before you even say it. Well, at the same time, really... In- yeah, absolutely. And at the same time, he's really enjoying his own personal B-plot of stealing pies from some merchant <laughs> on the ice. Yeah. Yeah. And I love how you think that's all you've got. He- he's stolen one pie. And then in the kid's lair, there's pies enough for everyone! <laughs> exactly. He's <laughs> got like pockets slash a hat full of pies. <laughs> yeah. And the little... He was trying to work out how he did the trick with the penny how do you make it land heads up every time and that comes back around again as well at the end with nardole which is really nice yes yeah Yeah, i like that as well i like that there's a section in the middle of the episode where they also just kind of remind the audience of this joke when they're uh, interrogating the the guy i mean he's fishing at that point and they're interrogating him and they're like the first thing he says is like oh how do you do that trick okay fine maybe it's not the right moment okay well i'll (laughs) ask you another time yeah excellent stuff yeah i also liked the doctor's willingness to manipulate an nlp this guy um but it's utter failure at it i'm against tattoos too i think that we're bonding so now you do my bidding, right? The doctor often tries to combine super intelligence and super cluelessness into the same scene, and it falls really flat. But here, magic. Super well done. Yes, absolutely agree with you. There's another scene where he NLPs someone. It blows my mind how incredibly charismatic he is in that scene. And that's when he's at the shit mill, which is basically just a hole in the ground yeah. whence people pull up buckets full of shit uh rocket fuel shit and when he's talking to the foreman the person in charge of this like what is there to be in charge of this guy basically just has to say all right pull up shit put it on a wagon take it away done you say that that is absolutely true because in the background you can hear someone shouting same as the last batch (laughs) and the five million before it is absolutely no intelligence required this this creature is the 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 size of the length of the Thames. Imagine the length of one turd. Like what? How many buckets worth do you need? You could kill it now. In fact, it escapes now. There will be enough work to be done by a million foremen at this <laughs> shit mill going forwards. Even one turd can propel the UK into the 21st century. (laughs) You can ride that sequoia all the way to Doggerland. (laughs) Doggerland. 
It's it's a flat under the North Sea. Ah, okay. Not what sprang to mind. <laughs> <laughs> no, of course it wasn't. Great NLP scene, anyways, is the point I'm trying to make. Like It, it is a, a lovely scene where he's trying to, not just trying, successfully convincing this chap to, or persuading this chap to relinquish information. It's like, uh, are they taking everything to Hampton? Oh, no, they're not taking it to Hampton. They're taking it to the steel mill. Oh, Hampton's code for the steel mill. So it, it, all of these teeny... Then it's not quite an LP, but it's incredibly clever trickery. I love that scene. Yeah, yeah. And I don't say more than I see. Oh, but you can't help it because you're a man of intelligence. Oh, yes, that's you. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Lord uh, Sutcliffe has noticed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I loved it when Bill <laughs> said, Lord Suff- Sutcliffe insisted on it. <laughs> and that worked. Did did Sutcliffe send you? Huh? Does Sutcliffe know that you're here? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, that's a fantastic scene. How did you guys feel about Lord Sutcliffe? I don't really feel like I have opinions on him. Well, well I mean, that's also a valid stance in itself, because I feel mm. like while he did try to chew the scenery with the few lines that were available to him, and I can't fault his delivery, he was a cardboard cutout villain. He was an evil. I he was an evil racist industrialist, and the thing that really pissed me off about him more yeah, than sorry, anything was when he was on the ice, and the crack starts coming towards him right between his legs, and rather than just choosing a side, <laughs> yeah. he just falls in the middle, like just walk <laughs> yeah, to one side or, right. or the other. Yeah, it's not that hard. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel like the fish monster at that point was targeting him personally, you know, like Jaws three style? Did it know who was on the ice? I mean, it should have been thanking him because Lord Sutcliffe was the one who blew the depth charges and released the fish. The fish should have been saying, thank you, my liberator. You have manumitted me from my personal slavery. Well, I feel like this begs the the question of how aware of um, above the surface politics is this fish monster? Oh, it's ears. well, it, fish don't like have it... ears, but it's, it's auditory canals are massive. I've got some trivia about Lord Sutcliffe. Oh, yeah? He was played by Nicholas Burns. Who's that? Why, he also played Nathan Barley in the eponymous sitcom Nathan Barley, written by Chris Morris and Charlie Brooker, which blows my tiny mind that he is the same character. This guy has range. He was also in a comedy sketch show called Manstroke uh-huh. Woman with, among others... Sophie from The Lodger, Ross from Into the Dalek, and Santa from Last Christmas. Not Nick Frost. Why, indeed, Nick Frost, Daisy Haggard, and Ben Crompton. Wow. Consider yourself (laughs) triviated. Yeah, nothing trivial about that. Very cool stuff. (laughs) How do you feel about Bill, Marie? Bill was your absolute favourite companion, the new absolute best companion the Doctor's ever had. How do you feel about Bill in this episode? I mean, I think she's fine. <laughs> Just everything's fine. Just fine? Okay, all right, fine. Maybe that speaks volumes about this episode. I think I did like like seeing her kind of come to understand the Doctor, and there was a little bit of questioning in the beginning, you know, how many people have you seen die? He doesn't know the answer. Yes. Have you ever killed anyone? You know, he tries not to answer and then he says, yes, how many people have you killed? And suddenly he realized that he has no idea how many people he's killed. And that's 
terrible. Like if that's a human, you know, with an average lifespan and you don't know how many people you've killed, there's something really psychotic about that. But to put that into terms of he's 2000 years old and like he was trying to say most of those times, it, you know, there wasn't another choice. It was either, like you say, Drew, the trolley problem all over again. I killed this one person or these 500 people die. But it was interesting to see that from a perspective of she's always looked up to him as this, you know, teacher figure who knows everything and she really respects and then to see the change in that, yeah, it was really interesting. When we think of Doctor Who as an alien, we think of his, not superpowers, but superhuman capabilities, because they're the easiest conceptually to get hold of. Oh, there's someone up there, and they are capable of more than we are. But a really fascinating element to the alienness is he engages with everything on a different level. He faces the trolley problems. There are no indirect questions about how many fractions of people's deaths are we sort of responsible for in our great global supply chains and are not acquiescence to but failure to combat modern slavery as i was talking about last episode and in this episode back in the 1800s he has it right there in front of him he doesn't have the option of turning his back he has to accept the consequences himself and i think that the episode is was great to have hinted at that and maybe could have made it even more explicit. So what about at the end of the episode, Bill and Doc basically returned to their usual rapport. She's quite happy to have gone at, at the very least changed the lives of these children or perhaps of the, the boy whom they declare to be the heir of Lord Sutcliffe. And, but she seems more to the point. She seems morally okay with the doctor. Like, what about all this whole, oh, you murdered people? She's seen him and seen the tough decisions that he has to make and seen... Cause, like, so basically, what he was trying to explain in the beginning and she wouldn't let him is it's not as simple as how many people have I killed or have I killed. It's if it's killing someone to save a life, like that kind of thing. And she's now coming to terms with, but you did this really great thing and you saved all these people and you saved the street urchins and you saved the whale. And yes, people died but like indirectly because of your actions. But, you know, like understanding actually more how he weighs things up in his head, maybe. But the thing I was going to bring up was when they're tied, like Bill and the Doctor are tied up in the tent and they fool around and they manage to get the sonic screwdriver and then he's like sonicking the ice and bringing the like the fish to him somehow mm -hmm. the guy that's watching the tent gets hold of the sonic and the fish and he basically like it almost feels like that's intentional like that's their escape plan is i'm gonna kill this guy and again the same with the boy like he lets the boy drown and then he grabs the sonic screwdriver the same thing happens this guy goes under before he goes he's like oh quick quick throw me the screwdriver i'll save you with no intention of saving him it seems like to me and so yeah i just wondered whether like how that fits in with the you know this weighing up of li like important versus unimportant lives and is this guy the bad guy or is he just doing what he's been told in to the do? way or something like, yeah like seems morally ambiguous yeah i did like I agree, that yeah. bill was as troubled by that guy dying mm. as she was when spider went under the ice i i thought that they did well to not have her go straight from objecting to accepting. I feel like, in fact, it's not that she's as okay, or, you know, she's not as objecting of it 
as she was when Spider died. I think that this is the middle ground. This is like a step in between where she realizes she's obviously against sacrificing someone or taking a life or just witnessing someone die. But she realizes that there's more to the context. Someone's like, yeah, but if we don't do this, we're, everyone else on the ice is going to die. We're going to die. We're, like, all those innocent people we saw enjoying themselves, they're going to die. And that guy was a bad guy, or he was at least in the employ of a bad person. So so maybe this is justified. Like there's a there's an element of her questioning her own reaction to what she's witnessing. I think there's an element of just the doctor is getting through to her. He's teaching by doing. This is a different mode of didacticism, and Bill is has been confronted with the unpalatable theory earlier on, and her response is just like, ugh, no, I don't want to accept that. But when she sees it happening in front of her eyes, that's what she's processing. And bravo Pearl Mackie for making both of those interpretations plausible. Yeah, well done. Yeah, no, she is really good. Now you're making me regret saying she was fine. She is really good in this episode. <laughs> yeah, well done, Pearl Mackie. <laughs> okay, I've got some questions. Is one of them how beautiful are the opening shots of London and the frost fair from the bridge when the doctor's looking out over it. I mean, I know that, it's basically no, white and grey, but I did really like it. It's beautifully done. This whole episode is, in fact, really nicely, nicely done. Effects, great. Cinema- cinematography, great. Colour grading, uh, <laughs> costumes, yada, yada, yada. No, 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 seriously, like, it's a beautiful episode. Don't yada, yada, yada the costumes. A department has just crumpled in a weeping heap. Yada, yada, yada. We put months of our no, lives... No, 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 no. No, costumes are fantastic. I was going to ask a different thing. There might be something that I missed here. This is, uh... Well, we'll see. This is a question that I wrote down in my notes twice. The second time that I wrote it down, I added the word, in all caps, AGAIN! <laughs> The question is, where did Doc get his scuba gear? <laughs> That's interesting. Just did he get it from it. the TARDIS? Did he purloin it from the street? So is there just like random <laughs> scuba gear for two people who are coincidentally exactly their size, just like there? What's the oxygen tied to? What the what the shit? How does this? What? No. How does this work? Am mm. I the only one who is in outrage over this? I was too busy being outraged at the way the ice reformed super quickly once someone had been dragged through it. That is not how ice works. And if it was somehow connected to the lanternfish, never explained. Well, we, ta- it, we talked about the, yeah, the it's, big it's whale. It's connected to the lanternfish and the monster. Yeah, the monster makes the ice. That's how alien ice forms from whatever planet that exactly. whale is from. Yeah, sorted. Exactly. Even if it's from Earth, doesn't matter. It's what that that is what that fish monster beast creature does. Makes ice. We talked about bartenders. Absolutely, on this makes perfect scientific sense. It was never <laughs> confirmed that that actually had anything to do. It was just hinted at, and it makes me annoyed that that if the space whale comes to save Britain in the 29th century, that this fish isn't still hanging around and like, hey, Jethro, or whatever his name is, Jethro, you don't want to hang around here. No, not worth it. They will enslave you and (laughs) not let you go for centuries. Happened to me. Get out while you still can. Oh, no, he's heard the children crying. Oh, he's a sucker for them. (laughs) Jethro, come back. They are super pervy people. They'll t- they'll chain you up and put your shit in buckets. Like <laughs> this is 
you want to stay away from this place, Jethro. <laughs> Seriously, at one point, Doc and Bill are suddenly on the ice wearing scuba gear. They are under the water. They're like, oh, great, cool, great, fantastic. Yeah, we've got oxygen. That's how this works. They somehow get up to the surface. Don't know how. These things are weighted down, but they get back to the surface. And then towards the end, boom, a cut to Doc just going like, you know what? Just wearing my scuba gear again. I'm under the uh, the ice again. I'm um, putting some explosives here and there. How? What? Wait, no. Yeah. I want to go scuba diving. I never go out on the streets and like on Cowley Road or wherever in Oxford. I never come across a, just a little trolley full of scuba gear. Oxford's quite far away from the sea, so you're not likely to. If you were on the coastal Fine, city, we're landlocked here, but it doesn't yeah. matter. <laughs> There's the river. Okay. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I don't think they had oxygen tanks. I think they just had massive pipes that lead out to the surface. It's like you're scuba diving, really, rather than... No, snorkeling. snorkeling it's like a massive snorkel. Yeah. yeah. So they don't need oxygen. And second... Yeah, he's already proven that he can steal 12 pies without anyone noticing. He just took it from somewhere. <laughs> he took it twice. No, he kept it. He took... If he can do it once, <laughs> he can do it again. He took two, and then he said, oh, these will be handy. You never know in an emergency when I'll need scuba deer. And he chucked him in the back of the TARDIS, and then he had them ready prepared for the next time. Yeah, don't be Makes so sense. jealous of the Doctor just because he's got a scuba guy and you haven't, Leon. I was super jealous. <laughs> now, I was too busy being outraged at the doctor's plan, full stop, to get eaten by this giant fish to worry about how he was going up and down in the water. Like, he shouldn't have been in there in the first place at all. Oh, and doesn't he send well, Bill okay. in first? I feel like Bill's not prepared. Yeah, so so why doesn't first. the fish try to eat them? That is a question. It is in my notes. That's in my notes. They are standing right next to this gigantic fish beast. It burps a hat at them. Nice hat, by the way. Well done, spider. And then, boom, nothing happens. This thing does not eat them. Oh, have you had enough, have you, uh, fish beast? Are you full? Have you been pooping about 3.7 kilometers of rocket fuel shit? Maybe it only eats street urchins. Maybe um, Doc and Bill are too old and chewy. They need fresh meat. <laughs> It can smell on them that, oh, no. I, I, I like it medium rare. I don't like it well done. <laughs> it's it's probably the fact that they're in this metallic getup and this fish is fine for shitting for its Cyberman, Cyber King building army overlords. And it's like, oh, yeah, I got to leave you guys alone. The humans are fleshy and chewy, but you guys, different kettle of fish. So to speak. Uh, okay. <laughs> I had a note that it's a pleasingly historically accurate map of the Thames that Doc shows Bill in the TARDIS. Because it shows the river's increased breadth predating the building of the Victoria Embankment. Is is it also a case of us seeing a map, like a contemporary, well, of the time, map that the TARDIS is displaying yeah. on its monitor. But so, the fact that they actually use it and don't screw it up, I'm yeah. prepared to give them a point for that. I'm prepared to second that. In the latest Classic Who episode that we reviewed, I think this was the latest one, The Visitation, they did the exact same thing. They had a map of London. I can't remember which year we're in. Uh, when was the Fire of London? 1666. 
Bingo, 1666. That's what it was. And they, they show a map that is in citation marks of 1666 on the TARDIS monitor. So two episodes of Who Back When in a Row. Boom, the TARDIS has done this. So that's all very good. But we have established that the frozen Thames is crawling with human life forms on its surface. It also has, presumably, aquatic life swimming in it. So why is it suddenly like, life form detected, life form detected? (laughs) That's a good point. It's not like the entire Thames freezes to ice. It's just the surface. Why isn't the Thames also full of dead fish at this point? Yeah. Also, there's a freaking elephant. Also, why doesn't it eat the elephant? (laughs) The elephant would keep it going for days. You say days. It's not like it's eating people every single day. It's eating people en masse once a what? Once a year or something? You wouldn't believe how many drunks topple off London bridges into the river. This thing has been in here for generations going back hundreds of years till records began and the same family have owned it in the thames yeah 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 occasionally (laughs) it does these big freezes Uh, yeah makes no sense what happens when it's not frozen over Uh there are boats going down the thames like does nobody run into it does nobody see it like it's quite big it's in my notes it's in my notes Is it that it's... Fi- oh, is it? <laughs> yes. Like it Go for it. it the whole time. I can't add any... Yeah, for a kilometre, I can't add anything more to Marie's excellent and complete point. <laughs> Do you think that it just feeds on people that fall overboard? I guess. Yeah, that makes no sense. It's a relative rarity that it freezes the Thames. Which is weird, because apparently it has the power to do it. And why is it do? Oh, this is such a good point. Yeah, why is this happening now? And and what happens when it isn't? No, screw this episode. I was about to give this a really high mark. Sorry. This makes no sense. <laughs> I'm sorry, Leon. Dude, I would say don't. This is don't your be doing, Marie. Into... This is your doing. <laughs> sorry, Drew. I was going to say don't be tipped into greater negativity than you would experience had we had zero recording issues tonight. You've got to try <laughs> to be fair despite all the technical problems. Yeah, we should say for Podcast Land's benefit, if the if the le- level of negativity suddenly rose, it's because we have had incredible recording issues tonight. Paul Marie is operating on about a six-second lag. <laughs> so incredibly sorry, Marie, for talking over you constantly. That is absolutely not our intention. Fine, don't worry. <laughs> Liam, have you got a final point? Oh, fuck, I just did it. I just did it. <laughs> It's not my fault, Podcast Land. It's the technology. I'm just going to say something more about Bill and how good she was because there was a point when this comes at the beginning. No, this comes right after Spider has been sucked under the ice and Bill confronts the Doctor and says, do something, save him. And it gave me Donna Noble vibes. I feel like we haven't had this much fun combined with a well-rounded character and emotional maturity since series four. We've had Amy Pond and she was a complete wreck as we found out on rewatch. Oh my God. Clara was the impossible (laughs) souffle. And here we once again have a human being who can lend gravitas to this moment and real heft to to her humanity. I honestly feel like great an actress as Jenna Coleman was, she did everything asked of her by the scripts. 
Bill is the most human person we've had since Donna, the most relatable, the most real. I just want to clarify to podcast land who doesn't have access to the video feed that we are watching at the moment, but I feel like Marie and I are on the same page. The second you started talking about Donna Noble, Marie and I both basically started rolling our eyes and going, oh, this again, <laughs> perhaps with a slight undertone of, okay, fine, he's got a point, but still. Donna well, it's lucky Noble. I'm not just talking to you two, but a whole world of audience who agrees with me. <laughs> But hey, okay. high five, Marie. <laughs> Let's hear your rebuttals if you care to provide some. No, I, I this does ring a bell. I don't know if it's just Donna Noble, though. Marie, please help me out with this. Have other companions done the same thing? Like, oh, please help help them, save them. You're, you're, you're a magical sci-fi creature. You I'm can not save Do- this I'm not saying Donna is the only one. I'm saying there's been a big gap between Donna and Bill. That's all I'm saying. Isn't Amy's yeah. first episode? Um, is it Amy? Who's who's in the beast below? And there's a little girl running off, and she's like, "Go and help Amy, the little yeah. girl." Yeah. Boom! Here's my friend who agrees with me. What about that? I mean, I don't really what want to I'm defend Amy because I feel like you're absolutely to... right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. No. It, 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 I, I'm. I, sadly, I'm also with you on this one. <laughs> Was that a look of, I don't like what he's saying, but I do agree with him from both of us, Leon. Yeah, this this was not quite Voltaire, but like close to it. <laughs> yeah, it was like, I hate you, Drew Burgundy, but damn it, do I respect you. <laughs> <laughs> if you just said all of that and just not mentioned Don and Oval, I would have been totally on your page. <laughs> Here are my friends who can't bring themselves to admit they agree with me. <laughs> I mean, that's my last point. Shall we jump into ratings? Oh, let's. And now it is time to rate this. Did we laugh or hate this? Bing bong, bing bong, hey, la, 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 la. Ratings. I want to start this by saying I don't have a score in mind, so I'm just going to talk for a little bit and uh, see what comes out, okay? So. Fantastic. <laughs> I wanted to pick up on Leon. You said everything was great, all the production, the cinematography the coloring the <laughs> costume department i wasn't super serious about the color grading but yeah yada, it was yada, great. Yada. <laughs> but yeah i didn't notice any of that in the opening scenes because i was so impressed with the costume department that i was busy drawing a little sketch of the doctor and bill for some <laughs> reason i've never oh, done wow. that before i don't i don't know why <laughs> I just found it. It's really, really not good. But anyway, yeah, no, he appears in this lovely little top hat and she's got this gorgeous little bow in her hair and they're beautiful and they're in Victorian London and it's so cool. And yeah, no, it's a really, <laughs> it's a really great show. <laughs> End of my review. No. <laughs> Doctor um, Who, great show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyone um, was made to wear a top hat, it's Peter Capaldi. Absolutely. He looks so cool. True, yes. Yeah, cranially. (laughs) He's made for it. So then we continue on and we have Bill. Like, she's already had an experience in, like, a future alien world, you know, but now we're going into 
the past and we get this gorgeous little scene about oh am I gonna step on a butterfly and suddenly I won't exist in the future and Doc starts joking around with her about what's that guy like oh that you know Dave here don't you remember him he disappeared like we were talking again Pete yeah Doc being really playful and charming and that's the perfect example like they are so so cute together but also that idea of what he says is you know you're don't worry about changing you know, you change something in the past and you affect history. You do that every day. Like every one of us has the ability to affect change every day. And we don't worry about that. But suddenly you go back in time and everything's a big, you know, a big concern. And I think that's just such a really interesting concept to just throw in there as a really casual, you know, side piece. But I, I like that idea of like, she's really nervous about going back in history. And you see her getting progressively more confident as the episode goes on so yeah so it's really nice to get this like intro through her eyes there's a few cute lines between them you know she's asking about his sonic screwdriver how is it a screwdriver it's a very broad sense don't be smug smug belongs to me like there's all these really just nice little lines and i do enjoy their little um interactions i enjoyed when they meet the fancy dude with the nice pants Mr. Fancy Pants. <laughs> Wait, that okay. Um, Sutcliffe. Mr. Sutcliffe. He has a very nice. There we go. There we go. Um, That's Lord Sutcliffe to you, coming out. <laughs> I think he gets called Doctor Disco, which is quite amusing. Um, and then this whole scene about mm-hmm. um, okay, Bill, you can't, you don't, you interact with him. You're too fiery and passionate. Passion fights, but reason wins, and it's a really nice. Like, he's not kind of putting her in a place because he's more experienced than her. It's more that she's too passionate and won't be able to control herself. And then within 30 seconds of this interaction, he's suddenly punched uh, Lord Sutcliffe in the face. Like, what? The Doctor doesn't punch people? This is fantastic. (laughs) And this idea that, like, oh, he's obviously human, Mm -hmm. you know aliens don't show racism in the same way that humans can i don't know so there's there's some really really like really cool really fun really nice moments throughout yeah so i really did enjoy it i don't know i don't know what i'm trying to say it didn't leave as big an impression on me as it could have done just because i think the whole you know like you say we've we've seen it before with the beast below we've seen a lot of like lone aliens that are always massive it's always this humongous scale that you can't comprehend this beast that we're living on and and it's the last of its kind, which I know it wasn't this time, but it just, it harked back to that so much and we have to release it. So it it didn't feel as innovative as it could have been. So I sort of, you know, it's not a great episode in terms of that, but I did like it. So I think I'm just going to, oh no, Nardo, sorry, I was about to wrap up and then I thought, no, I have one more thing to say and it's Nardo was really cute and fun at the end. I liked this line about, I'm putting coffee in your tea because it needs a good taste of something. And again, this like playing with time. And a bit of flavour. Exactly. Like they've literally, I'd totally forgotten actually that at the end of the last episode, they left and they were going to see him upstairs for tea and then they arrive at the exact second he walks through the door. That's really sweet. That's a really nice like rounding off um the episode moment and so i give it a little little extra for that as well so i'm gonna bump it up a little bit i will give it a 3.2 all in all 3.2 you say i do all right i'm gonna go next because i uh, quite frankly i don't have that much to say 
I'm a fan of Capaldi in this one. I feel like he does an incredibly good job of shepherding his newish companion around. It's the first time that Bill is in the past, and consequently, it's a it's a new role for the Doc as well. He does a very good job of. I mean, Doctor Who in general as a TV show, it, it seems to sort of equate goodness with humanity, hum- and hum- and vice versa, humanity with goodness. And humanity is always clarified, characterized, personified through empathy and loyalty. And I think that Doc has a number of different points throughout this episode in which he hits on exactly these character traits. You know, he empathizes with some, he shows loyalty towards Bill, he uh, entertains the kids with his storytelling, yada, yada, yada. He he saves the UK once again, slash the world, possibly, maybe only London, maybe just the borough surrounding the Thames, who gives a shit. Anyway, it's great. He's fantastic. We have two scenes in particular, actually, I already mentioned the kids, but we also have his scene with Sutcliffe, uh, Marie, you talked about this briefly. The uh, no, we have to exhibit diplomacy. We have to exercise diplomacy and and uh, restraint. And then the second Sutcliffe comes in and he says something horribly racist, Doc punches him in the face. Great scene, Bill. Excellent. Bill, I think, is a fantastic lens through which to watch the proceedings of this episode that gives you exactly the perspective of the audience in having her relay her interactions with the past and her impressions of 18, whatever it was, 1814 London, encountering these kids and encountering racism, encountering a huge fish beast monster under the, the, the Thames. Pretty much spot on how the audience would react were we ever to be played in that re- in that situation and i think she does that super well like i really i sympathize with bill because she is an extension of me as a my own very subjective representation of us the audience i like bill i am a million percent on board for bill she's so real <laughs> <laughs> yes dag nabbit yes I wanted to say this is a compelling plot, but I mean, come on, you guys are totally right. This is basically the beast below all over again. In one, the beast is an engine. In the other, the beast craps fuel for the engines. Eh, whatever, it doesn't matter. It's all the same excuse for the same stuff. The kids, fine. I'm, in fact, you know what? More than fine. I am happy with them not being CGI'd in this case. I will allow it. That's already a massive plus point. Racist Sutcliffe, meh. Production value, huge thumbs up. Bands throughout the episode, good stuff. I am a fan of this episode. It's just that it doesn't add much to the continuity of the show. And for that reason, the rating that I've written down and the reason that I reacted the way I did a minute ago, Marie, is the rating I've written down is 3.2. Wow. It's my friend who agrees with me. Boop, boop, boop. Here I am. <laughs> I'm going to pip you, but only very slightly. Oh. I love being able to use words like delightful and fun, genuinely, without any hint of cynicism or archness to describe Doctor Who episodes. Because for the first 20 minutes, I was frankly enchanted. How do you stay out of trouble? Mm. I'm not the right person to ask. Both Doc and Bill are low-key in love with the TARDIS. Marie has already brought up anything Bill does now could change the future. And Capaldi turns around and says, exactly like every other day of your life. That's my favorite line in the whole episode, because it's so true. And the matter of factness of his delivery is wonderful. Lord Sutcliffe has an orrery. I love an orrery. The giant fish was lost from history because the frost fair involved a lot of day drinking. 
Just brilliant. <laughs> yeah. And they have a really mature conversation when they're setting up the trolley problems, by which I mean it sort of gets to the philosophical heart of the matter and they deal with it and how that intersects with the doctor's life head on until it becomes the exact same silly fairy tale we've had before it is very reminiscent of the beast below as we've discussed ad nauseam there it was uh, the ones who walk away from omelas situation here it's more of a that one family who enslaved omelas and made coke bricks out of omelas's shit situation but it's still basically a retread there is something about seafood biomass that makes a Doctor Who writer think, hmm, a ton of oceanic flesh should be accorded the exact same level of dignity as a ton of terrestrial humans. This is the best way to make my point about the equivalent value of non-human life forms. If I put a noise of, the, of it going at the end, it'll melt everybody's hearts. It's weird. Perhaps the whale plummeting to Earth in Hitchhikers really did get into a whole generation's worth of people's heads. <laughs> The speech about what defines an age and defines a species is great. Okay, but leave it there. We have Bill nodding. Then Sutcliffe praises its rhythm and vocabulary only to be bested by his impeccable evil. I can't help but cringe at any hint of a writer's self-regard for their own script. We've had this before from Moffat, and now he's getting his team to do it as well. Stop it. I want to know how long it takes before you can make a speech like the one you just made. I can't stand the hubris. I'm removing 0.2 for that alone. Uh, I would just like to add However. that Jim Jim called that. As soon as that line came out, it was like, Drew is going to be all over this. <laughs> <laughs> Great stuff, Jim. You know me so well. <laughs> I will end on a positive note, though, because I'm going to give this a positive rating. The scene down by the vault with the series of three knocks at a time. It's a great coda. Nardole drums up his courage and faces them down. I like Nardole better here than I have at all so far. And then you get a fourth knock right as the credits roll how intriguing so i'm going to give this episode 3.3 which is what i gave the sound of drums and under the lake drew i can't believe you don't want to come down just a decimal just so we can have that that pinnacle of like the perfect unity and we can all have the same review again it's only happened (gasps) once in podcast history and you've denied us wait when did it happen when would it happen listen we all gave it 4.7 oh my goodness I really did enjoy the first 25 minutes of this episode. The last 20, okay, and the third act was its usual sort of mix of nothing makes sense bullshit. But I enjoyed the beginning enough. I've got to go two thirds of the way to a good That's fair. (laughs) I'm still super duper happy that we are pretty much on the same page with this one. Yeah, this almost never happens. Dare we see where the podcast lands differ? (gasps) Oh, no. It's all going to be either 1.2s or (laughs) 5.0s. Now let's hear from Podcast Land. Max 250, or it would get out of hand. Shazamatron! And welcome to the listener mini section of this podcast episode. We have a triumvirate of listener minis at our disposal today. And holy smokeroonies and cheesecakes, first out the gate, we have Kieran Evans. What up, Kieran? Hi, Kieran. Hi, Kieran. <laughs> Kieran starts, Hi folks, a racist, rich Victorian guy using an alien creature's poo as fuel? Yeah, I like this one. It asks enough questions with the material to warrant spending the time on it. The critique? 
but exploitation fits well with later episodes of this series, and Bill witnesses more hard choices than the Doctor has to do. The Frost Fair is a nice atmospheric setting for the story with a carnival atmosphere of everyone on the ice. And Kieran continues, the Doctor punching the racist? Well, while I'm not a fan of the Doctor doing violence, here it feels sort of justified, and it's very much for Bill. The ending is a little fairy tale in style, but I'll let it off this time. Bill being surprised at events not appearing in the newspapers reminds me of, but this is Earth, 1963. Well, someone would have noticed. I'd have heard about it. Do you remember the Zygon Gambit with the Loch Ness Monster, or the Yetis in the Underground? But that's a future quote for you guys to look forward to. Oh, interesting Ooh. okay also reminds me of another good line in this episode the lockless monster yeah yeah excellent <laughs> and also that totally harkens back to classic who and kieran continues and thereafter concludes coincidentally thin ice is also the title of a <laughs> audio part of the lost story range it has ice warriors in it Ooh. Kieran's rating is, yeah, again carrying on the good start to the series. 3.6 out of 5 slabs of rocket poo. Mmm, that's my favourite rating system. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's really clear cut. (laughs) Fantastic stuff, Kieran. Oh, guys. I've been meaning to purchase a new van, but I'm really mindful of the environment. Where should I go? (laughs) (laughs) Marie? (laughs) Why, I believe the best bet is at KJE Vans. Two. That's right. That is absolutely right. Head on over there for all your electric electric van options. And also, while you're there, high five Kieran for a spiffing mini. As always, thank you very much, Kieran. Thank you, Spiffing Kieran. mini and business model. <laughs> <laughs> Next up... <gasps> Oh my goodness, can it, what, is it true? Do mine eyes deceive me? Why, it's Andy Parkinson. What up, Andy? Hi, Andy. (laughs) Hi, Andy. (laughs) Andy starts. What ho, gang? Doctor Who has covered the issue of slavery and racism before, often through analogy, but not this time. It smacks you right between the eyes. Throw in a giant aquatic creature, some street urchins, and a contemptible villain who would be twirling his moustache if he had one, and we've got the makings of a pretty good story. Pearl Mackey's Bill is, without doubt, the star of this story as she experiences the highs and the lows of Regency London, but also as she finds out more about the Doctor. Her reactions of anger, then revulsion at twelve seeming indifference to death, whether at his hands or at those of others, is brilliantly done. As each story passes, I find myself more and more sorry we only got Bill for one season. Not to be outdone, of course, Doc lays out Sutcliffe with a single punch before giving him a speech on the value of human life. That's not to say there aren't flaws, though. And here come those flaws in the form of... Beefs! First beef. Where did the creature come from? How did the Sutcliffe's capture it? Yeah, I want to know that. (laughs) Second beef. How does the creature fit through that bridge after it's released? I mean, with its sheer weight, it presumably just scours away the riverbed. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, maybe. And Andy concludes, whilst the story itself is a little unremarkable, I'd like to have more backstory to the creature and Lord Sutcliffe. Its central theme, and of course Doc and Bill, are what carry it through. 
With great sets and costumes, it could almost be a period drama. I'm not sure a companion, especially a new one, should be making the decision about the life or death of a creature. But overall, it was an enjoyable story. It's very true. Doc's taking off the training wheels very quickly. Yeah, definitely. Mm, true. And the estimable Andy Parkinson awards this and 3.9 dodgy fish pies out of 5. Oh, another absolutely rock solid. In fact, rock it fuel solid rating system. Speaking of rock solid, Andy writes a postscript. He hopes Ponkin Towers has been suitably protected with plastic sheeting in preparation for next week's episode with Poirot in it and the splooge fest that will inevitably occur. <laughs> that is absolutely fantastic, Andy. Thank you very much for, for <laughs> making a note of that. It, that was, I mean, holy smokes, next time on Doctor Who, David Suchet. Yeah, not only is this in its notes, it's up the wall and across part of the ceiling. <laughs> it's in my pants, it's in my pants. <laughs> Andy, you're awesome. Thank you very much. People who are not Andy, please, for the love of all that is pure in the universe, you know the drill. Please do follow Andy on Twitter. When you do, high five him from us. He can be found at Caffrey's What Marie? 71. That's 71. What, Drew? Caffrey. Correct. (laughs) Thank you very much, Andy. And next up, last up, we have Eddie. Rick! That's right. What up, Eddie? Eddie, start. Hello. Who back when? Well, hello, Eddie. Eddie says, in this episode, Bill has to decide whether to risk people's lives by helping an innocent creature or killing it. The space whale, oops, sorry, that was Amy. I mean, the moon dragon, nope, that was Clara. (laughs) My point is, this is a trope that is repackaged and used for many of the Doctor's new companions. This one is pulled off well, unlike Kill the Moon, with an interesting setting, an easily hateable villain and lovable street urchins. It does a good job of setting the stakes high early when they kill a child right before our eyes. It's a great catalyst for Bill's emotional response as even the viewer is in an initial state of shock. Fuck the viewer. (laughs) Uh, Bill is forced to examine who the Doctor is and how much death not only follows him, but also that he himself has been the cause of on multiple occasions, which puts him on thin ice with Bill. (laughs) Hey! Brackets, sorry, not sorry. Uh, This is done with some exceptional acting by Mackie and Capaldi, who comes off as very cavalier about the death of the child, but does a great job at explaining why he must. Capaldi continues to impress by portraying coldness and kindness simultaneously. It's not all heavy, though. There's some great humour here. Between the psychic paper bit and the con man with the pies, overall, Eddie gives this episode a 3.5 out of 5 forgotten companions named Pete. (laughs) Until next time, Raccoon! (laughs) (laughs) Yet another fantastic rating system. Holy smokes, three for three. Yeah, this is definitely a three point something out of five. We have <laughs> proved that conclusively. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is yet another excellent mini from Eddie Rock. Eddie Rock, putting the rock in Eddie Rock. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the Eddie, because he's Eddie Rock. <laughs> Nailed it. Awesome mini, Eddie. Fantastic stuff. Holy smokerines and cheesecakes. People of Podcast Land, if you happen to have um, 
suffered the misfortune of not being Eddie Rock, fret not, you can still salvage this situation. Head on over to Twitter, follow Eddie Rock, learn about how he leads his life, adopt his mannerisms, adopt his philosophy and outlook on the world, become Eddie Rock by following at the Eddie Rock. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much, Eddie. And that very neatly encapsulates this Doctor Who slash Who Back When slash Thin Ice soiree. But it doesn't end there because there's plenty more Who to contend with. What have we got coming up next? Why? Good question, me. Next up, we probably have a classic Who episode in the form of what, Marie? Earthshark. Rhymes with Eddie Rock. (laughs) (laughs) Earthshark. After which we're probably back... Fantastic. Excellent. After which, we're probably back in New Who territory with um, mm, what, Drew? Knock, knock. Fantastic. Oh, if only, yeah, if only the next episode in line would rhyme. At some point, we will be heading into bonus Who territory, namely with our very own Who Back When branded audio adventure, Strange Readings. Ock. In the meantime, you can most definitely say hello to us on uh, the uh, interwebs. Marie, I believe you are to be found on the gram. Indeed, just type in the three your three favorite foods, and there I will be. Wait, hang on. So let's put this to the test. My three favorite things are ham, yeah, mash, yeah, and jelly. Nailed it. Oh, score! Hey, fantastic podcast land. You know what to do. Um, oh, thank goodness. I was going to go to a- Abby Evie Cricket. <laughs> Nobody's there. <laughs> Very quickly, go and register that. <laughs> <laughs> Drew, when you're not to be found on at Abby Evie Cricket, uh, where are you to be found? I can spice up your meantime podcast land at Drew Back When on the Tweety Box. Oh, excellent branding. I have a few things to learn from you because (laughs) I am to be found at Ponkin. That's right. That. Doesn't even rhyme with Eddie Rock. What's the point? (laughs) Podcast Land, thank you so much for joining us this evening or morning or afternoon, whatever the time is where you are. Apologies for the massive lag in audio on our side. You've been a lovely audience. Please stay safe. Get that vaccine. Rock on. And uh, ciao. Ciao. (laughs) (laughs) Bye bye. (laughs) Toodles. (laughs) Kablamo. Did you enjoy the show? Then please do what the cosmos compels you to and spread the gospel of who back when. Tell your friends. I've got no friends. No problemo. Tell some strangers. Hey. Like us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash whobackwhen. All in one word. Are you into Twitter? Awesome. High five us online and we'll high five you right back. You guessed it. We're at whobackwhen. All in one word. Check us out on Instagram for behind the scenes photos and other Whovian goodness. Watch our videos or even listen to our podcast on YouTube. That's whobackwhen.com slash YouTube. Vote us up on Reddit. Listen to us on Stitcher and head on over to our website whobackwhen.com where you can submit a review of your own, browse the article archives and peruse our visual index of aliens, monsters, 
posters and more, which increases in Kablamos with every episode. And lastly, give us a rating and review on iTunes. It helps our show get noticed and earns you lots of karma points. That's it. Rock on and be rad and excellent to each other. Catch your earballs in our next Who review or bonus episode. Until then, cha ciao Who like when? <laughs> we did it. We did it. <laughs> Fuck this Holy episode. So hard up the Thames. <laughs>